Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the indictments against former President Donald Trump carry with them the possibility of serious criminal penalties for Trump personally, and they have major implications for the future of our elections and our democracy. Trump waived his right to appear at an arraignment scheduled for today in the Georgia election interference case and pleaded not guilty in a court filing. If it's been hard to keep track of the indictments, including the 91 charges that Trump now faces across four regions, we're here to help. We sit down today with Slate's Dahlia Lithwick and Vox's Andrew Prokop to talk about how these unprecedented cases rank in importance and impact. Join us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Donald Trump's legal web has grown more tangled than ever, writes Andrew Prokop, senior politics correspondent at Vox. The cases involve allegations of attempted election theft, mishandling, classified documents, hush money payments, and they span four jurisdictions, Georgia, Florida, New York, and D.C., he writes. This hour, we'll take a closer look at the implications of the indictments, what we're learning about how Trump plans to defend himself and how his legal issues are shaping the 2024 presidential election. Joining me now is Andrew Prokop, whose recent piece titled Trump's Four Indictments Ranked by the Stakes offers a guide for understanding the cases and why they matter. Good to have you on, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me. So you put the D.C. case brought by special counsel Jack Smith at the top of your list as having the highest stakes. And basically, I think of this as the insurrection case. So remind us why this indictment is such a big deal. This is the main federal indictment of Trump for essentially trying to steal the 2020 election to keep himself in power rather than uh, Joe Biden. And This was brought by special counsel Jack Smith. Charges were filed in the District of Columbia. Um, You know, it's kind of, it's a complex issue. There are various legal implications of theories, Jack Smith's being advanced, not all of which have yet been fully uh, argued out or tested in court, but it's probably the, uh, looking like it will be the quickest of the four indictments to go to trial. And because of that, and because the judge in the case, Tanya Chutkin, is pretty much uh, the 
least sympathetic, we suspect, a judge that Trump probably could have drawn in the District of Columbia. Hmm. She's been known to, um, she's been handing down the harshest sentences for January 6th rioters. Um, uh, just has a consistent pattern of that, just, just yeah. being very, um, uh, you know, not very, very lenient in those sentences. Uh, so when you keep in mind that, the fact that it's a, a pretty clean case, the jury pool being in the District of Columbia, a heavily Democratic city. Uh, this is this is the first one that that probably seems like it has a good shot of um, of ending in a conviction for Donald Trump. Of course, a conviction is not the end. There will be appeals. There will be a sentence, and um, and so it's too early to say what will happen after that. But this is the one I, I put at the top. Yeah, of the threats to him right now. And this is basically the one that charges him with conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding and to attempt to obstruct the official proceeding of the certification of the 2020 election. And then by extension, conspiracy against voters depriving people of their constitutional right to elect their president you write that the outcome of this case could have major implications for every race that follows, including 2024. Why? Well, I think this is, you know, this is the case with with big, big picture implications for the future of our democracy. Because what I view as happening here is that there was kind of a cloud of legal uncertainty after Trump tried to do what he did in 2020, after he made all those efforts to get states to switch their results and then to get Congress to throw out the results, to get Vice President Mike Pence to throw out the results, uh, culminating in the violence at the Capitol on January 6th. There was a question in, let's say, the year or two after that happened of, you know, is was this actually illegal? Did this amount to an illegal conspiracy? And uh, the the federal uh, prosecutors at the DOJ they didn't seem to immediately jump to saying, "Well, this is obviously illegal." They were prosecuting all the rioters that they could get their hands on who actually entered the building that day. Anyone who was involved in violence. But as far as as Trump's months long effort to 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 steal the election to deprive um, the voters of the United States of, of their rightful choice um, th- there was some hesitance it seemed in, in 2021 maybe early 2022 about whether that was criminal so Jack Smith is advancing uh, a theory really several theories because these charges are, various ways to kind of say the same thing, that this was a, this all amounted to a criminal conspiracy. This wasn't ordinary politics. This wasn't just, you know, contesting the election uh, in, in, in a normal way. And so it's, it, I think this is essentially trying to say, all right, this, this behavior, we won't accept this in the United States of America. This amounts to, um, an, an illegal attempt to interfere with the workings of democracy. And we want to deter anything like it from happening again. Uh, of course, the, whether that actually happens depends on whether 
A, there is a conviction, and B, whether the various appeals that Trump will surely lodge about you know, speech and, and claiming that this was all political action on his part, um, what the higher court judges eventually make of those appeals. Yeah. And so basically, if he isn't convicted for the actions that he took on January 6th, whether or not they amount to the charges of conspiracy or criminal conspiracy, that is up to a judge and jury to decide. But if he isn't held accountable for those actions, you you worry that essentially these kinds of things could happen in the future. Yeah, that it's essentially put, yeah. a green light that that this, you know, as messy as this was, people got mad about it. But hey, it's not illegal. So try it again. You know, mm. maybe try it again in a few years in a different circumstance. Uh, see what happens. Well, let me invite the listeners to join the conversation. We're talking about the indictments this hour. And if you have questions about them, go ahead and email them to forum at kqed.org or post them on Facebook, Instagram, Discord. We're at KQED Forum, Twitter as well. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. How will you feel if Trump is acquitted in this case or others found guilty in those cases? How would that make you feel? Has anything revealed in the various indictments changed what you think about the former president? So you have noted, of course, that um, if Trump were to become president again, he could possibly stop the federal prosecution, um, the federal cases that he faces, but but not a state case like the Georgia case. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the Georgia indictment. I, I call this one the just find me 11,000 votes case, again, just as a way for me to <laughs> keep track of the different areas that they cover. But but talk a little bit about the, the Georgia indictment. So in contrast to the federal stealing the election case, which was pretty narrowly targeted, Trump is the only defendant. Uh, the Georgia case is big, sprawling. Uh, there are 19 defendants uh, charged with under state law, uh, a state racketeering law, but Again, what essentially amounts to the same thing, which is kind of a conspiracy to to steal the election. And, um, you know, it's it's much more complex. There's there's a, a kind of sprawling indictment with many, many different what call overt acts being listed that that amounted to part of this alleged racketeering conspiracy. And so. You know, the complexity of this case and the number of defendants are already leading to it becoming uh, there, there's all sorts of action in it already, even though um, we may not be anywhere near a trial date for Trump. There are some defendants who moved to try to get a trial earlier. Uh, Kenneth Chisbro and Sidney Powell both um, filed requests under a Georgia speedy trial law that that they wanted a trial soon. Yeah. But now the Chesapeake was granted that trial to take place in October. But now Sidney Powell wants one, too. And uh, he says he doesn't want to go with her because they're charged with different things. Also, perhaps because she is uh, she's a little out there. And um, and then you have on the other side, uh, there's Mark Meadows trying the former White House chief of staff trying to get the case moved to federal court. This is something Trump will probably try to. But. I think they're right now waiting to see how uh, the judge who the federal judge who heard this suit uh, is going to rule. And uh, Meadows wants to move the case to federal court. He wants to argue that 
you know, as a federal government official working for the president, he can't be charged with this under state law that he was he was doing essential essentially official government business and that um, any charges would have to be filed um, would have to be argued out in the federal uh, court system and that and that there's you know there's a strategic reason for that which is that the jury pool for Fulton County is very heavily democratic but the jury pool for the federal Georgia court district where um, this trial would take place if moved to federal court is less heavily democratic. It's it's still uh, mostly democratic, but there's more of a mix. And that matters because to convict, you need the votes of every juror, uh, even if there's one holdout um, that would lead to a hung jury mistrial. And so um, I think Meadows and probably Trump fe- would feel their odds are better in federal court. And now, in contrast to the defendants who are trying to get a speedy trial, Trump wants the trial to be as late as possible because he's hoping to put it off perhaps until he's president. And then he can argue, well, we have to put it off more because I'm president. And so Fannie Willis, the Fulton County District Attorney, is saying, no, I want to try all these people at once. I want them all to be tried together. um, And why not? Why not do it quickly? So the judge in that case is hearing arguments on at least some of these issues today. And and it's already quite complicated and it'll take some time to sort out. Yeah, a lot of activity in the Georgia case today. And most of the counts in that case essentially relate to the effort to put together a slate of alternate electors from Georgia who would cast electoral votes for Trump rather than the actual winner, Biden. Um, Also, in terms of soliciting uh, a public officer to basically violate their oath related to, of course, the Brad Raffensperger solicitation um, where Trump asked him to find him just 11,780 votes, very specific number. And we will talk more about these two cases and hear from you, our listeners, after the break. We're talking about the indictments that Trump faces and making sense of them for you. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state. 
That, of course, is the infamous call that Donald Trump made with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. We're talking about the election interference case in Georgia, also the January 6th insurrection case in D.C. And we'll also get to the two other indictments that former President Donald Trump faces. We're talking with Andrew Prokop, senior politics reporter for Vox, who covers the White House elections and political scandals and investigations. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions about the indictments, the cases that Trump faces, how you feel about a potential outcome, whether an acquittal or a guilty verdict. Uh, Has anything in the various indictments changed what you think or how you feel about the former president? You can tell us by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Facebook, Instagram, Discord. Our social channels are at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786. And also joining us now is Dahlia Lithwick, senior editor for Slate, covering the courts and the law. Also, she hosts the podcast, Amicus. Uh, Dahlia, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you again, me. So you wrote a piece for Slate in which you noted that the contrast between Jack Smith's case and Fonnie Willis's cases really complement each other. Do you want to talk a little bit about why you see them that way? Some of it is is what you already heard from Andrew, which is just the notion that Jack Smith's case is narrow to the point of almost being a, a sketch, you know, like a very fine law drawing with as as little detail as possible, and 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 laser focused on Donald Trump himself. And in some ways, it's it's the rocket ship case, right? It's the one that is meant to go fastest because it is directed only at one person and it is as little information as you could possibly put into an indictment and and still kind of prove up your case. And then I think Fonnie Willis took, you know, what I think of as this kind of, you know, full color oil painting layered you know pointillist like it's it's as different in terms of its construction as can be imagined and you have this kind of operatic sweep of of players and participants and co-conspirators and and it takes you you know ranges from Georgia to uh, you know the White House to uh, 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 events that take place in Philadelphia and there's just a, a sense in which the two could not be more different and yet in some sense they each tell versions of the same story but one of them tells it in such a way as to make sure that kind of no stone is left unturned and maybe the other thing that i flagged in the piece is that i think in some sense jack smith's indictment it's an abstraction right it's crimes against democracy against the peaceful transfer of power but Fonnie Willis wants to tell an actual story of crimes against voters, against principally black voters, against election workers, right? Uh, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. And so the two are kind of, in some sense, perfect bookends for one yeah. another with um, Fonnie Willis really centering violence and and, and uh, uh, crimes against actual people. Yeah, it does paint a much fuller picture of what 
has happened or how this kind of interference can play out. But but as you note, I think you quote Jennifer Rubin in saying that the Georgia case may face months of wrangling, flipping, bargaining with conspirators, and lengthy pretrial shenanigans. So what are the risks associated with such a sprawling indictment, you know, with 19 people, 41 counts? Well, I, I, again, I think you all flagged it in the conversation right before the break where we have parties who are moving to sever, parties who want to go quickly, parties who want to go slowly. Um, you know, each and every one of them is probably thinking about, do I want to cooperate and get myself off the hook, right? There's just an immense amount of divergent interests that are not all rowing in the same direction. And in some sense, I think Fannie Willis, you know, there was certainly a feint at we're going to get this done before the election. But with this many, you know, 19 defendants, 41 counts, um, you know, all these further unindicted co-conspirators, the notion that this thing can be buttoned down in a matter of minutes. I mean, we were already seeing in the intervening weeks that everybody who has an interest in this case is filing a motion to do yeah. something. Well, well, Andrew, what do we know about the judge in the case, Judge McAfee? So Judge McAfee, he, he, uh, he is a Republican. He was appointed by uh, Governor Brian Kemp. Um, I don't, that being said, I don't really, he's, he's a pretty new judge. And I don't think there's much of a, a track record to really get a sense of, you know, whether he will he will have some sort of political slant in how he approaches this case. It seems to have been handled pretty professionally so far, but he hasn't really had to do too much so far. So perhaps uh, the hearing today will give us more of a sense of, of how he's leaning. Uh, he also has to run for election, which is another consideration that uh, may be um, headed on his mind. Hmm, interesting. Well, this listener asks, um, a lot of media is acting like, of course, he is guilty of these crimes. But what if he's not found guilty? What is the impact on democracy? And would the lawyers appeal? It's a big question, but but let me try to break down how we might answer it. <laughs> One of the things I'm wondering is what we are hearing in terms of Trump's legal defense. Um, one of them, of course, that's been well documented is that one of the three lines of, of defense that his lawyers will pursue is that Trump was was speaking and that his speech is protected under the First Amendment. And I'm wondering what you have to say to that. What are the counter arguments potentially to that defense, Dahlia? I think that that's the standard line in most conspiracy cases, right? It was, I was just talking. And uh, in any conspiracy case, right, if you think about the kind of classic Tony Soprano version of it, it's, you know, I want you to go over to like that guy's house and I want to make sure he's swimming with the fishes. Like that's speech. And so the notion that all speech is unequivocally protected under the First Amendment has to be wrong. It's why if you walk into a bank and say, give me all your money, uh, that's not a protected speech act. So I think the simplest answer is lots and lots and lots of crimes involve speech and certainly conspiracies. And if you think about 
you know, the RICO statute, the racketeering statute uh, that is being used here, and this is the the Georgia version of it, um, it's meant to sweep in conduct where the person at the sort of who's the engine of the conspiracy always has plausible deniability because somebody else always does the criming for him. And that's why we have these racketeering statutes. So I think the simplest, cleanest answer is not all speech is protected. A version of what we were hearing was, you know, this was aspirational speech. Uh, You know, his lawyers were just saying, like, he was just kind of wishing aloud that these things would happen again. If it's aspirational speech in which you direct somebody to find votes that don't exist, that's beyond aspiration. But I think... As I said, the cleanest answer to that is that lots and lots and lots of crimes involve speech, and it's not a blanket defense to say I was just talking. Yeah, it's kind of similar to the defense against the idea that he, that Pence essentially was working or was the recipient of his request to stop the certification of the election. And the defense seems to be suggesting that Trump didn't specifically order Pence to stop the certification of the election results. Do you see similarities there, Dahlia? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the same. Again, if you read uh, the Fonnie Willis indictment, it is very clear. And by the way, Jack Smith says this very expressly in the very first page of his indictment. Donald Trump is free to say what he wants. He's even free to say the election was stolen. He's free to say many, many, many things. What he is not free to do is launch this chain reaction of acts that attempt to set aside the election. And so, Smith is very, very careful to cabin what he says is absolutely protected First Amendment activity that Donald Trump uh, can lawfully engage in, and then the line beyond which it becomes, you know, unlawful because he's directing people to do things. And so, again, I think both indictments show a real solicitude for the fact that that will be the defense. And both indictments, I think, are at pains to say when you start telling people um, create a false document with fake electors. Uh, you have crossed the line from mere speech into directing people to do things. And in Mike Pence's case, Mike Pence's case, into doing a thing he has no lawful authority to do. Well, what defense am I not getting at here that you think is is plausible for Trump's lawyers to put forward, Dahlia? Is it that he was president when all of this happened, and that he was acting within his presidential? powers based on a conviction that he held deeply that the election, you know, was stolen from him. Well, well, the version of that is the one that you mentioned with Mark Meadows, right, that everybody was acting under color of, you know, their official job. There is a version of that, which is the advice of counsel defense, uh, that his lawyers were just giving him legal advice, right? Good options, just spitballing, throwing out some legal uh, alternatives, and that he took that uh, seriously, uh, that when his lawyers said to him, you know, Rudy Giuliani saying, you absolutely have the legal authority to do that, then, you know, he took that seriously. And and that is a, a, a real defense, and you see it all the time uh, in lawsuits. So it's, a, it's not expressly a First Amendment argument. It's the argument that, 
look, people surround themselves with lawyers because they're not lawyers. And if their lawyers say something is okay, they should be able to assert that they were doing that under advice of counsel. I think there's real, real questions when you have, you know, the entire White House counsel's office, your own attorney general, Bill Barr, you know, every lawyer uh, who steps uh, into your path and says, you absolutely cannot do this. And then you have Sidney Powell, like popping up on the side saying, oh, sure you can, uh, whether the full force of I had one lawyer who told me it was okay is actually going to be a meaningful defense. We're talking with Dahlia Lithwick, senior editor at Slate, who covers the courts and the law. Uh, also hosts the podcast Amicus or Amicus. Her New York Times bestseller, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America, is actually available in paperback on September 19th. Andrew Prokop is with us, who covers the White House, elections, and political scandals as a senior politics reporter at Vox. And you, our listeners, are with us, posting on our social channels at KQED Forum, calling us at 866-733-6786, and emailing us at forum at kqed.org. Paul writes, I love how Mr. Meadows and his ilk are the same people who, for most of my life, have railed against murderers getting off on technicalities, and now they are looking for help in the technicalities. Andrew, I am wondering if we are starting to see some cracks um, in terms of people putting the blame on the president himself as a way to help them get out from under this. Yes, I think there's a fair amount of that happening. Several of the uh, Georgia fake electors were kind of saying that. I do think Dahlia's point about the advice of counsel, legal advice, defense is going to be an interesting one because, you know, a lot of this evidence has been laid out extensively uh, by the January 6th committee. And we can sort of see already, we know the story of kind of how these arguments bubbled up from lawyers like Ken Chesebro um, up to through um, up to John Eastman to Rudy Giuliani, how Sidney Powell came in, and then um, and the president chose to listen to them and and not his um, his typical campaign lawyers or his White House counsel lawyers. Uh, how he favored uh, the Justice Department's Jeff Clark, um, who was working. In the civil division uh, rather than the actual top appointees at the at DOJ. Um, he seems to have been, you know, picking and choosing which lawyers were telling him what he wants to hear. But, you know, so, so I think these lawyers, which are kind of viewed as, you know, they are the unindicted co- co-conspirators in the federal case, mm-hmm. and they are actually indicted in the Georgia case. And, I think it will be tough for them to say, oh, you know, Trump just just made us to do it. I, th- I think the small fry have more of a more of an argument for, hey, we were just we were just carrying out Trump's wishes. And, and we thought that, you know, he's the president. He, he knew what we were what we were being instructed to do was legitimate. Um, but as far as the lawyers who, who know the law and should theoretically know better than this, uh, I, I don't think that argument will work as well for them. Well, what impact do you think that could potentially have if you do have more and more people, you know, trying to save their own skins as opposed to um, working together to try to mount a strong defense in totality? Dahlia. I mean, this is where it's important that in Georgia, right, there's no pardon available. And it's very, very 
powerful to be one of many, many, many uh, co-conspirators, or as I said, you know, dozens of unindicted uh, uh, co-conspirators who have to say to themselves, I, I'm not uh, Roger Stone, right? I don't get a pardon from t- Trump if he wins in 2024, because in Georgia, uh, even the governor doesn't have pardon power. It's done by a, a board and it has you know, it happens long after. And so I think there are a lot of small fry who are going to say that the strategy that holds you stick with Trump for all perpetuity because he can get you out of it kind of collapses based on this mm-hmm. being a state prosecution. Mm-hmm. But then even at the highest level, I mean, there's an amazing piece in Politico yesterday saying even at the highest level, you're seeing Mark Meadows begin to throw Donald Trump under the bus, right? That he's already starting to craft the narrative that Donald Trump was issuing orders and he was just effectuating them. You know, he was really just kind of, you know, emptying the ashtrays and filling the water glasses and that Donald Trump was the guy who was the architect of all this. And so I think it's fascinating to see, you know, all the incentives for the folks who are the lowest, lowest kind of uh, uh, very, very ancillary uh, participants in the conspiracy have no reason that they want to go to jail for years and years for Donald Trump. But also at the highest level, I think starting to see people like Meadows say, I also (laughs) don't want to go to jail for Donald Mm -hmm. Trump. And I think one of the most interesting things we heard last week is Mark Meadows essentially saying, I just did what... Donald Trump told me to do because I was scared he would yell at me. So that's where we are. Well, let me read a couple of listener comments. Listener writes, I don't think I'm alone in saying that it's so hard to keep up with all of Trump's legal problems that most of America has just tuned out. I worry that voters have decided already about him and whatever convictions or acquittals that come out of this won't make one bit of difference. Also, I'm worried that in the details of these cases, Trump might find a loophole to wriggle out of. He seems to have a record of slipping out of litigation. Another listener writes, of course, this story must be covered. It's not every day that America has an ex-president who is now running for re-election, indicted four times, not to mention the issues of democracy at stake. But here we are yet again with Trump dominating news cycle after news cycle, sucking all the oxygen out of the room getting what he loves more than anything, attention, attention, attention. We're hearing your thoughts, listeners. We're hearing legal analysis from Dahlia Lithwick. We're hearing great reporting from Andrew Prokop, all about the legal cases facing ex-president Donald Trump, which include the January 6th insurrection, the election interference in Georgia, the documents case in Florida, the hush money payments in New York, and we'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Warum. I'm Mina Kim. This hour, we're looking at the implications of the indictments that Trump faces, what we're learning about how Trump plans to defend himself, and how his legal issues could shape the 2024 presidential election. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation. Douglas in San Francisco is on the line. Douglas, thanks for waiting. You're on. Hi. Thank you very much for taking the call. Listen, um, I think it's a wonderful topic. I'm a bit cynical, though, with regards to this we got to save our democracy. <clears throat> I worked in the executive branch from 1980 to 1983 under the Reagan administration. We lost our democracy, or our democracy was taken away from us in 9-11 with the Patriot Act. Many people don't really understand what happened to our democracy with the Patriot Act. That was done legislatively. Our democracy's nail in the coffin, I think, was Citizen V United when it ensured our corrupt Supreme Court ensured that we would be an oligarchy ruled by rich people forever with Citizen V United. Mm. I think I see where you're going, Douglas. And, and Dahlia, what do you think? Douglas feels like it sounds like that there isn't a lot of democracy left worth saving <laughs> after those two things. What what do you think, Dahlia? I, I mean, I, I want to commend Douglas on, you know, concerns that we, we could and should do a whole show about. I mean, I, I am as worried about the Supreme Court um, as I've ever been in my life. And uh, I think it's quite right to draw a line between, you know, the Patriot Act, the creeping surveillance state, you know, the the ways in which we give away our information to the government, um, you know, and, and, and getting us to the place where we have a kind of uh, Supreme Court that is making uh, decisions that benefit a handful of oligarchs. So I, I don't disagree with any of that. But I, I think I want to link Douglas's question to the, you know, question you read right before the break, which is the ways in which we can just become cynical and nihilistic and hopeless. And, you know, that all this looks like another spectacle with a motorcade and a helicopter landing. And I think that I try to remind myself that there is a world of difference between broken democracies and breaking democracies Hmm. and that we do not have, I think, the luxury to say, you know, it's all over or, you know, again, as Andrew was saying earlier in the show, if this can happen again, right, if the president who refused in advance of the election to say that he would respect the election results and to this day says uh, he will not respect election results in which he doesn't win and that he furthermore plans to use his Justice Department to harm his political enemies. Like, that's when we're broken, right? That's that's it. We're not there yet. And I think maybe my slightly long-winded answer to Douglas is 
this is the moment to fight because after 2024, if he gets elected and he simply says there will never be another free and fair election or there will never be another uh, peaceful transfer of power, we're going to do this by way of vigilantes and mobs and, you know, a Justice Department that goes after Hillary Clinton, then we're in trouble, but we're not there yet. And so my caution is, I think that the sort of helplessness of saying it's all irreparably broken, there are for sure huge problems with how democracy is oper operating and we should be fixing them. But I think it is not the same thing as having somebody who is running for our office who does not believe in democracy. And that's where we are. Let me go to caller Rucha next in South SF. Hi, Rucha, you're on. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, like you were saying, you know, Trump always finds a loophole somehow. And I'm worried that the jury pool, if it has Republicans who have already made up their minds, they will not find him guilty and disregard all evidence and simply this results in a mistrial. So what can be done to make sure that the jury pool is not tainted? Hmm. Well, Andrew, you mentioned earlier about how where the trials are, you know, of course, will determine the likely makeup of the juries and so on, but it only takes one juror to basically hold up the entire process. Do you have any thoughts on Rucha's question? Yes, I, I mean, I, it's you're not permitted to strike a juror based, um, you know, to target like fully based on political views alone, you are permitted uh, to, uh, if you're defense counsel or prosecution, to try to strike a juror who um, you have reason to believe will not approach the case and the evidence in an impartial way. And so that is what they are going to have to try to suss out. And it's going to be extremely challenging because Donald Trump is perhaps the most famous criminal defendant ever, uh, a former president of the United States. Everyone knows who he is. There will be people who um, probably have followed politics less or think of themselves as less political. I would suspect there will probably also be perhaps people who, you know, say they uh, they can be impartial, but perhaps may not really be impartial. Um, but I think that's where the that these are four indictments in different places with different jury pools. Um, we haven't really talked about the documents case, today, yeah. but the classified documents case in, in Florida, that's where Trump, the evidence and the legal issues at play um, seem to be the most clear cut of any of the cases. Like he had these documents. He should not have had them. It's, it's kind of what, prosecutors call a documents case like it's uh seems pretty open and shut however trump got um someone who is widely believed to have been the best uh judge he could have possibly been assigned to this case eileen cannon trump himself appointed her the uh, in very uh pre-indictment wrangling about this case when trump filed a suit after the fbi search of mar-a-lago he seemed to go out of her way to um do make very strange rulings that, that were soon overturned by higher court judges. But, you know, she has, there are signs that she is skeptical of the government and will be looking out for Trump. Also, mm -hmm. the jury pool in this area, the Southern District of Florida, um, a lot more Republican than any of the other three uh, jury pools that are going to come into play here. Washington, D.C., um, 
Fulton County, Georgia, and uh, Manhattan, another case we haven't really talked about yet. You're right. Uh, do you want to just touch briefly on the hush money payments case um, and what <clears throat> you see with regard to the fact that it will be in New York? Yeah, I mean, this was the first indictment that was brought, and um, I think there was a lot of skepticism about it at the time, or mixed opinions, uh, mm-hmm. because it was it was an old case. It related to the the hush money payments that Michael Cohen had made to Stormy Daniels, so she wouldn't go public about her affair with or sexual encounter with Donald Trump uh, right before the 2016 election. And Trump reimbursed Cohen for those payments. The technical charges he was hit with uh, related to New York City bookkeeping laws uh, or New York State bookkeeping laws uh, in that he he claimed that these were legal expenses when, in fact, he had no they were hush money payments and and he had no signed um, retainer agreement with uh, Michael Cohen at that point. And so I think there was skepticism about about this because it's like, hey, you, you can't indict him for trying to steal the election. You got to pull out this like <laughs> this this thing from from years ago. And there was a period when Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg looked like he wanted to move on from the case, but then he got a lot of political backlash and he he picked it up again. And uh, there are various also he he found a way to charge these as felonies by arguing these were in commission for another crime. So, you know, in theory, these are serious charges. But, um, you know, in practice, I I do think they're they're the least um, threatening uh, to perhaps uh, or or at least the the least implications for the broader state of our democracy or for the rule of law if Trump gets acquitted or national security um, with regard anything. to the documents case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, I think the the Bragg case, the New York case, has kind of receded from the conversation. And Bragg has even said he had planned to hold the trial early next year. But now he said that, you know, if the feds want to go first, which they do, uh, he'll he'll delay and, and reschedule. So, yeah. Um, So, yeah, Yeah. I I sort of expect that to kind of be pushed to the back of the line. Yeah. And in your stakes ranking related to what we just talked about, democracy, elections, national security, the order is Smith's, then Fonnie Willis's Georgia case, the election interference case, then there's the documents case, and then the New York hush money payments case. Do you just want to remind us quickly what has been set as dates as of now in uh, the cases? I believe there have been three trial dates at least. Yeah. Yeah, well, the the trial date for Jack Smith's uh, election prosecution of Trump in D.C. is March 4th, 2024. That's the day before uh, the Super Tuesday primaries. Um, the New York City trial date was set for March 25th. So just a couple weeks later, that will have to be moved because it's uh, it seems pretty clear the D.C. trial will take some time. Uh, and then the Florida documents trial was set for May 20th. Um, I've seen a lot of speculation that that will be delayed or uh, moved as well because there are just various issues regarding um, classified documents that may take some. They have to settle how that will actually be handled in court, in public, what what can be presented in public, what will have to be presented in private and um 
uh, that may take some time to figure out too. And uh, the Georgia case does not have a trial date yet, but uh, except for Kenneth Chesebro, who was given his his very early trial date that he requested of October 23rd. And today the judge is hearing arguments about whether um, uh, whether um, this should be split off from the other cases, especially Sidney Powell's, who also wants to go early. Well, if there is a guilty verdict, or even if Trump faced jail time or was in jail, would he be disqualified from taking office, Andrew? Especially if, um, like, as you're saying, the very first trial is like the day before Super Tuesday, <laughs> where the votes will have been in, or for a lot yeah. of places at that point. There's there's no there's no legal reason why a guilty verdict in one of these cases would automatically disqualify him from taking office. And uh, I mean, we we're really getting into kind of uncharted waters here. Uh, yeah. I, I think the, the toughest one to kind of figure out is, you know, what if it's a Georgia conviction that somehow happens before the election and he gets sentenced to state prison and he's there. So like what happens when, when, when your president is in your, your elected president as serving a Georgia state prison sentence, do they let him out? Um, it's kind of wild scenario to yeah. game out, but, um, but we may not um, end up with something like that. And uh, yeah, the federal cases, um, what comes into play is that the constitution sets you know, their requirement for the president is you got to be a natural born citizen and 35 years of age. Now, there is an argument that uh, some uh, liberals and even a few conservatives, anti-Trump conservatives are making that Trump should be disqualified under the 14th Amendment because he supported uh, an insurrection. And mm -hmm. this was a, you know, this was passed after the Civil War and uh, intended to um, uh now it's being applied, uh, or there was a suit brought, I believe, in Colorado today. They're going to try to, various groups are going to try to push this in various states to try to get Trump taken off the ballot. Now, I think this is a little, th this gives makes me queasy a little bit, because this is where you get into um, tough territory with the trade-offs between the rule of law and um letting a democracy play out and the voters choice play well, out. Let me, if let me remind listeners that we're talking with Andrew Pocop and Dahlia Lithwick, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And, and let me read a comment along what you're bringing up. Trish writes, due to the lifetime security provided, uh, I'm sorry, Trish, there's another Trish. Trish writes, with so many convictions for seditious conspiracy of those following Trump's call to action under the concept of transitive law, it seems that Trump also is guilty of seditious conspiracy. Does seditious conspiracy equate to the insurrection or rebellion cited in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? And let me get you to weigh in on that, Dahlia. I, I mean, that's certainly the argument that's being advanced. And, um, you know, as Andrew says, it has been bolstered that sort of section three of the 14th amendment argument has been bolstered because uh, of a law review article that was written by two very conservative originalist law professors will Bode and michael stokes paulson 
Um, and it's a forthcoming law review article in which they say this isn't even close. Uh, they absolutely argue that um, the, you know, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment disqualifies Donald Trump from running for office. And that furthermore, they write it's self-executing. You know, nobody has to do anything. He's simply disqualified. And and as you've just heard, we're going to watch various attempts to get secretaries of state around the country to take him off the ballot um, and other attempts to to make this happen. Uh, I will say also that that Law Review article was in turn bolstered by, you know, Larry Tribe, who's kind of the dean of the progressive legal constitutional movement, and Mike Ludig, who uh, under you know any other set of facts would be seen as a very very conservative figure in in the conservative legal movement, and they uh, wrote an article saying same thing. This is not even a close call. So I think that we sort of have a constitutional provision that at least you know the plain text of which seems to suggest. Uh, that this is a thing and it's a thing that can be used. And then we have the same question we have, you know, time and time and time again, which is how would it happen? Will it end up at the U.S. Supreme Court? What will the justices of the Supreme Court say about using the 14th Amendment to disqualify the president? And in a sense, it feels like it's a mirror image of the argument that John Eastman and Jeff Clark and other legal theorists were using when they wanted to do the sort of fake elector scheme and they wanted Mike Pence to not certify uh, the slates of electors, which is you can find lots of interesting stuff in the Constitution. And the question ultimately will be, uh, are there five votes at the Supreme Court that say it's both interesting and true? And who knows? But we're in, as Andrew says, very uncharted territory on that front, too. Well, this listener writes, won't these cases just last for years? Trump will appeal. The government will appeal. Seems like Trump will want to get to his hand-chosen Supreme Court. I predict this will go on and on. And like others have said, Trump gets to stay in the limelight. Dahlia, I know that we've been talking about the stakes and ranking and the stakes and how all this could potentially go terribly wrong for elections and for our democracy. But I wonder if we've also accomplished a lot to get to this point as a nation, trying to hold up the rule of law, trying to save our breaking but not broken democracy yet, considering the conditions that we are in with, you know, an unprecedented figure like Donald Trump, a party apparatus that has been holding him up. Is there something worth, you know, leaving us with with regard to what we've accomplished up to this point in the last 20 seconds? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think all this weariness and nihilism is not the solution. (laughs) I think the solution is to say, holy cow, the, the, the system is holding and we have to play a part in making sure the system holds. Well, Dahlia, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Dahlia Lithwick, check out her writing in Slate. Andrew Prokop, thanks as well. Thank you. And my Vox. And thanks to Grace Wan for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.